welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Srinivas Rao is the host and founder of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast and the author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, The Art of Being Unmistakable. He's interviewed over 500 insanely interesting people on the show, including bank robbers, performance psychologists, and entrepreneurs, all in the effort of inspiring and encouraging his listeners to stand out by being unmistakable. Srini, thanks so much for the great work you do and for joining us on the call today. Yeah, thanks for having me. All righty. So let's go back to beginnings. And I'm really interested in this one because I caught you really, really early. Well, it seemed early um, with Blogcast FM and, and things like that that you've now changed. So tell us how you started this crazy road that you're on. Mainly by accident. Uh, you know, it, it's weird because uh, I had no plans to start a podcast. In fact, when I started, uh, you know, messing around with things online, my whole purpose for getting a project online off the ground was so that it would help me find a day job. And eventually it did, um, but that didn't last very long because anybody who knows anything about me knows that I'm not very good at keeping jobs. Uh, so, but a big part of the reason for that is that what I had started online, uh, which was a blog called the school of life and what you had mentioned, uh, broadcast FM, which was spun out of the school of life, uh, and started literally as just a weekly series called interviews with up and coming bloggers, just a blog post in an MP3 eventually evolved into broadcast FM. And what has happened, you know, over this last several years is that body of work has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, I've interviewed something like 500 people now. I've written multiple books. Um, you know, we've planned uh, a live event. So what started out as a project that was designed to help me get a job eventually became the job. And in a strange sort of twisted way made me unemployable. I think for a certain period of time made me unemployable. But I think now if I really wanted to, and I was really worried about this for a long time, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm, have I really done something so drastic that I may have done irreversible damage to my career? Like if it, if, if it came down to it, would I ever be able to get hired again? Not realizing that, okay, the body of work I've created would kick the crap out of the resume that I had. And so, you know, now it's a combination of things which, uh, you know, we can talk about, you know, how we evolved from Blogcast FM to what is now Unmistakable Creative, but we run the Unmistakable Creative podcast. We had a conference called the Instigator Experience last year. Um, I just got a book deal to write two books with uh, Penguin Portfolio. That just literally happened. And then we're working on uh, a bunch of other projects like an animated series with a major production company. I can't tell you who it is yet because uh, we haven't gotten official word that we can say it, say it, Um, but it's big. Um, so, so we got a lot of stuff going on that kind of all has just evolved organically. Uh, I wish I could tell you, I sat down and said, you know, I'm going to end up here and you know, that, that would be the furthest thing from the truth. I didn't plan to get here. I just kind of kept making adjustments along the way. I mean, now, you know, somewhere along the way, I did kind of have an idea of, okay, I want to end up around here, but it is kind of the ship sailed off course quite a bit. Yeah. So I remember some of our conversations way back in the day, right? And a big tension that you had at the time, and you're probably going to want to stab me in the eye for this, is how to build what you were building around, like, you know, surfing times. Um, and that was that was a real big tension point. So how does a how does a surfer end up building basically a a media empire the way that you've done it? Like, tell me about that. Um, you know, it's interesting. I it, like. 
there have been moments when I have had to give up that, like I've had to basically make a choice and say, okay, you know what? The work is going to become more important. And it's, it's funny you bring that up because amazingly enough, when the work started becoming more important, the work started getting worse. Uh, that's when we started to run into all sorts of problems. I was just not happy when I wasn't surfing regularly and it kind of made its way into, way into my work. But I mean, part of it is I think that despite being sort of known as this surf bum, I also have a commitment to getting things done and a bias towards action that I think is, I don't know, I mean, I would say maybe it's, it's stronger than a lot of people's because when I have an idea, I'll, I'll give you an example. My friend Matt Monroe and I have been tossing around an idea for an app and we were talking about it. And we got to this point in the conversation where we said, wait a minute, why are we talking about building something that we don't know if anybody wants? And I said, why don't we just buy the domain name and the landing page and put it up? And I did it. You know, this was, I think, I think he mentioned this on Friday. And this morning I sat down in an hour. I went on strikingly. I designed a landing page and put a title up on it with some tagline. And now we have the domain and I'm going to throw it on Hacker News and see if anybody would actually be interested in the app and then we'll build it. And so I think that because I've always had this bias towards action uh, it's allowed me to do things, you know, and the other thing is a lot of people are always looking for permission, right? We're looking for approval. It's like, is everybody going to approve this? Anybody? And I realized you just, you can't get any big project off the ground that way. I mean, even when we did the instigator experience the first time I, I was like, okay, this is crazy. I don't know the first thing about planning a conference, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw up a landing page and I'm going to say that this is going to be the most amazing conference you're going to go to. It'll be better than every conference you've ever been to. And it's going to be something different. It's not going to suck. And, you know, I literally started with a cop, really just a bunch of nonsense copy that sounded like inspirational psychobabble and a thing that said enter your email address. And nine months later, we were putting on the event. So I think that really is at the core of it is that I've never been a person who's not in motion. And, and that helps a lot. Uh, the other thing is I think that surfing actually makes the work better. You know, when I found out that I was getting a book deal, I was like, shit, I'm going to have to get closer to the water so that I can write every day. I need to be in a place where I can surf regularly in order to do my best writing. Uh, you know, I, I wrote a book called the art of being unmistakable that was self published. And, you know, looking back, I realized I wrote a good amount of that on a surf trip to Costa Rica between surf sessions. So, I guess you could say that uh, where I found the thing is it, it's what energizes me. It's kind of the, the fuel behind the fire. So it kind of it, basically one thing fuels the other. Yeah. And, I'm, you know, I never really considered you a beach bum for what it's worth. Right. I just knew that it was a strong priority. But I want to draw that out, though, because when you look at a lot of creative giants or, or peak performing creatives, what you'll find is they do have these largely physical habits that they that they have or physical activities it could be running and weightlifting crossfit you know uh meditation they could be you know knitters right there are all sorts of weird things when you talk to people about what they do that actually provides a habitual anchor that allows them to do their great work right and it's it's kind of like the runner who puts on the shoes right people think about runners and like you have to psych yourself up like for runners at a certain point they just put on their shoes yeah i mean i've started running recently and i hate it but i I still do it every day like on the days that i can't surf i'll run and it's interesting you brought up that this you know physical aspect of this anchor i mean even jonathan fields talks about it in his book uncertainty that you need some sort of anchor um, if you're going to do this kind of work and when the anchor gets out of balance, that's when things really go into a tailspin. I mean, I, I realized, um, I was getting so stressed out sometime, you know, between, I mean, we had a pretty rough year after, after April last year, but, um, 
there's a period at which I was so worried about everything that was going on with the business that I literally would just sit in front of the computer all day waiting for the next disaster to strike. And I just wouldn't surf. And that did absolutely nothing for the business. So, so I think those anchors are really critical. And I think it's, it's, it's interesting about physical activity, especially for creative people. I think that makes a huge difference. I mean, your body being in motion, um, is just one of the most important things you can do for your work. All my ideas, I think, come from you know my time in the water or time away from the computer. I rarely come up with you know brilliant ideas when I'm sitting and staring at a computer screen. Yeah, I mean, our bodies are way more than hand transportation vehicles, right? And so it's just one of those things where you have so much intelligence that doesn't actually sit in our brains, right? It, it actually sits throughout the myelin sheath, and you know I could go on and on, but yeah, get a get a physical activity because it makes a huge difference. Um, you mentioned, hmm, which way am I going to go with this? You mentioned it was rough after April of last year. What happened? Tell us a story. Here's the, the simple reality of it is that um, we discovered one really, uh, you know, painful discovery was to discover that what we didn't have, we'd done a really good job building a brand. We'd done a pretty horrible job building a business because we had basically existed as a hodgepodge of projects, many of which gave us a lot of money all at once. And that's not a sustainable way to keep going. And it was hard because, it, you know, you feel like you've, you know, really busted your ass for all these years and suddenly you get this illusion of I've made it. You know, even though I, I don't believe in I've made it moments, I thought, OK, this is it. Like we have put on an event. You know, we got we got a lot of money all at once. And I don't know that I was prepared for, you know, I, I didn't set myself up for what would happen after I put everything I had into that event. And. Um, you know, after, after that quarter, like after, after that month, you know, we had a lot of things go wrong. Sponsors not renewing, like it just, but the reality is it, the one thing that was really wrong was that we didn't think past the event or I didn't think past the event. Um, and you know, momentum is one of those things that's really critical. Uh, and so I learned that lesson the hard way. And sometimes that's the only way you learn. Like, you know, one of my mentors said, you know, you get these momentum windows and in a momentum window, you have an opportunity to make such a gargantuan leap that you'll never go back down to the same level again. And we kind of blew it. Or I, I blew it because of a, a lot of personal reasons and just, you know, dealing with a lot of stress and anxiety and even, even depression, which I've, I've you know, talked about at podcast movement on, in my keynote speech. But uh, really, I think there's also a lack of clarity on my own values. That's probably the bigger thing. Uh, you know, I wasn't really clear on what I wanted, you know, you called it a media empire. And I thought that what I wanted was to build truly like a Huffington Post or Gawker style media empire. And I wanted to be, you know, that group of people. And that group of people is very separate from their audience. They, they don't interact with the audience. Like you'll never have a conversation with Nick Denton, no matter how many Gawker websites you visit. Cause Nick Denton doesn't give a shit about you or me. Nick Denton wants to know that their eyeballs and that there are ads being bought because that's what biz the business Nick Denton is in. And, you know, rightfully so. He's building a media conglomerate. Rupert Murdoch doesn't have a relationship with any of the people who, you know, watch shows on Fox or visit any of the websites, uh, millions of websites that they probably own. And it's weird to think that you want that. And it's hard not to believe that anybody would want that. Right. Why wouldn't you want that? It's all, you know, it comes with money and fame and prestige. And. I think not being clear on what I truly valued made me go after that. And that was, that's a really, when you're, when you're fighting to basically create something that goes completely against all your own values, it's a disaster in the making. 
Um, I mean, to the point where it finally looked, I, I literally thought in November of last year that it was all over. I was like, we're going to pull the plug. We're done. I mean, we had money left, but I was like, we're done. We're, we're history. Like we've only got a couple of months left. And, you know, uh, the guy at work with my business partner now, uh, really kind of talked me through a very tough time. But one of the most important things that we did during that was we, we did sort of this values analysis and what rose to the top for me were, you know, creating things and community and relationships. And he said, no wonder this wasn't working. He said, there's no way you're going to succeed the way you're trying to do this when you're going against the two things that matter to you most. So that's, that's kind of a long, that, that's probably the most useful nugget I can give you about, you know, the challenging period, because to me, that's the lesson. That's the lesson anybody could take away. Yeah, I like to talk about um, what I call the simple flow. It's where you line up one's natural affinities and you line up one's way about getting things done and then you line up one's goals. And when you think about it, whenever you have your methods that aren't in alignment with your affinities, you're just going to have a hell of a time getting anything done because it's always going to be brute force. It's always going to be like you got to put everything into it. And the second you're done and you're done with that, it's over, right? You got to start all over again, right? And so, yeah. Why did you chase that path, though? Well, you know, I mean, I, part of it is working with a mentor and, you know, I, I wanted approval. That, that probably was the biggest thing, I think, is that in order to get somebody else's approval, I kind of lost sight of what I wanted most. I kind of made a wrong choice and I shouldn't have made that choice. Um, that, that was, you know, kind of, that was one aspect of it. The other thing is I, I'm not sure I was starting to wonder if there was no future in the other, other direction. Like I wasn't sure I could see building a future in the way it, you know, it was going to go. I mean, you know, one of the things that I've made a distinctive choice to do as far as, you know, teaching or courses is you know that nobody like we don't offer a course on how to do a podcast and we never have we probably never will even though we're kind of early pioneers to this space and if we created one we could probably sell a lot of copies of it um but we kind of made a, a conscious choice to say you know we're not in the business of teaching people how to become us that's just not what we want to do and i still hold that line pretty strongly but you know, when we made that, you know, to me, I thought, okay, if that's the case, there's no future in, you know, uh, doing something smaller and doing something that's kind of the tribe. We've got to build this massive media conglomerate and you don't, you know, and that's, that's, and it was, you know, it's, it's such a hard lesson to talk about and it's a hard lesson to really put into words because it's one of those things that I don't know that anybody could really understand it. It, it sounds just like nonsense until you've gone through it. Um, I think that you kind of have to go through, some of these challenging periods to really understand them. And that's, you know, our latest writing project, the compass is really all about this. Um, and, you know, kind of really getting aligned that, I mean, you know, that, that to me is really, if you think about the compass, it serves as a tool to get people aligned. Yeah. Well, there comes a certain point to where you really do understand that you can do just about anything, right? I mean, there's some possibilities that, that are just not possible anymore. Like you and I being astronauts, you know, that's a long shot at, at our age, right? <laughs> Um, but in the world of business, there's a lot you can do, but just because you can doesn't mean you should, right? And that's the hard point to learn because when you're in the earlier stages of your career and business life cycle, you largely define your day to day by what you can't do, right? Um, and then when you're later on in your cycle, you define your day by what you want or don't do. <laughs> Very weird thing. Um, what was the moment? If you, if you can take us there, what was the moment where you knew, ah, crap, I'm going to have to do something different. Like this is, this is, you know, 
I'm on the wrong path and I need to do something different? Um, I think it was, it was pretty clear when, uh, you know, we made a second go at the instigator experience and, you know, in January, I think the second week of January, we pulled the plug. None of the, we didn't sell enough tickets. And I was like, how is it that we had gone so far from this wildly successful event to something that we're just dying here? I mean, it was, this was hands down. Like last Christmas was the worst holiday season I've ever had in my life. I was like, I want this to end. I don't give a damn that other people have Christmas because we launched in December and we had this event like you, you know, luckily we negotiated a the refundable deposit with our venue, but it was kind of like, here's this thing that we had built from the ground up brought to life. And it was something beautiful. And now it was practically on life support. We're throwing Hail Marys to see if it would come back to life. And it just wasn't. And I think that was one of the pivotal moments. Maybe, maybe not the one of it. I think if I, you know, what came to me right now was that it was like, okay, we're really far from who we are and what we stand for. If we can't even make, you know, our own attendees from last year's event would have been our biggest supporters and, and, you know, they would have sold the event for us and that wasn't happening. And I knew I'm like, we've made a lot of mistakes here. Okay, cool. Cause I've seen it go both ways, right? Sometimes it's an external thing. Like we're not selling this event and that's selling us something. Other times it's just, you're sitting there drinking coffee one morning and it's like, Oh, Oh, right. I've seen it have to be internal and external. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the bigger ones. I mean, it, it, there are a lot of internal things too, but that one, you know, really, you know, I think we've gotten away from our core at that point. Do you consider yourself at this point a natural writer or are you more of just a natural, like um, verbal creator? You know, that's an interesting question because, uh, I've up until this interview consistently said that I am a far more skilled interviewer than I am a writer. And I think I would hold that line. I mean, more people know me for my interviewing skills than my writing skills. But on the flip side of that, I recently got a book deal to write two books. So, um, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I would say that as an interviewer, I think I stand above the crowd pretty significantly as a writer. Maybe not, um, like as a writer, there are people who have more lyric gifts than I do and are more poetic when they write. But I think I've developed a fairly distinctive voice and it probably helps that I've had hundreds of influences and inputs, uh, into that process. Like I talk to people that most people never get exposed to because you think about it, like the world that we live in, um, this sort of, you know, entrepreneur internet world is really incestuous, right? Like everybody reads the same blogs, everybody listens to the same podcasts, everybody, you know, like it, it's, I mean, it's just a bubble. And I've always made a conscious effort to bring, you know, people from outside the bubble into the work that I do. So I'll give you an example. This morning uh, on our show, there's a guy named John Bramblett and John Bramblett is visually impaired. He's blind. He can't see, but he's a painter. And John Bramblett's art looks better than anything I've ever painted in my entire life. But the thing is that you don't know who John Bramblett is. And whereas I could say, hey, by the way, on Wednesday, we're having Tim Ferriss. Immediately, you'll know who that is. But I look for the John Bramblets of the world more than I look for the Tim Ferrisses of the world. So it allows me to have this really diverse perspective. Uh, And I know I'm kind of going off on a a tangent here, but... (laughs) You know, I was talking to Justine Musk yesterday. Uh, we were having a chat about what it is that I envisioned as a career. And she said, you're a multimedia producer. And that's, that's really what I think I am, is I'm a producer. Like, I mix different art forms together and produce it in different forms of media. You know, audio happens to be one. Events happens to be another. Writing happens to be one of them. So I think that I have evolved as a writer, but I would definitely say I am still much more skilled as an interviewer, like if you look at the level of craft that I bring to each one, 
as an interviewer, it's far higher. So why are you writing books? Mainly because I like it. That's a good enough reason. You don't have to have anything, any other reason besides that, right? Well, you like it and people are paying you to do so. So there you go. I like it. And, and, and apparently it resonates with an audience to some degree. Well, we mentioned this briefly before we started recording. Uh, like, you and I both, though we have shows, it's listening, it, you know, listening to podcasts, listening to stuff is not our preferred way of learning and, 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 and consuming content, right? And so I, I think a lot of people struggle with that as they start finding their own path, as they confuse their affinities with creating stuff, with their affinities for consuming stuff. And, you know, there, there comes this simple beauty that works sometimes when you just create the stuff that you want to see in the world, right? Not what other people want to see in the world, but what you want to see in the world. And, and obviously, there's finding the product market fit. Uh, do people actually want this? But when you get too far away from creating something that you love, it's just going to be a lot of hard work. Well, I mean, you know, why? Yeah, people ask, why would you go through all the trouble to create a conference? I said, well, I created the conference that I wanted to go to. And that's really all I did. Yeah. Um, and that's what it takes courage to do sometimes, right? Is it's a lot easier to have someone else choose to con- or create the conference or wait for you to be picked as opposed to saying, I don't like this. I'm going to do something different or I could do that better. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And that's, that's also, there's also a level of arrogance that comes with that, right. To say I could do that better, but you know, that's the thing, right. Is that if you have, there's no way you're going to do anything of great significance without embracing a little bit of audacity. Well, yeah, we have to, have that bit of functional delusion to do what we do, right? Because you have to see all those people who try it and it doesn't work and think that you're the one that's going to make it work, right? Or, you know, you just have to be functionally delusional to be a, a to do this type of, of work and, and to live the life of a creative giant. You just have to. Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. So, what was some of what were some of the biggest lessons you learned when you started making that transition to writing um, your first bestseller? Um, that's a good question. I think that just the process of writing that book actually reveals a lot of that. But uh, you know, I'd spent a lot of time trying to write in a way that I thought would resonate, as opposed to writing in a way that I just felt like writing. You know. Um, writing in a way that was honest, kind of stripped of all the BS and stripped of hesitation because I can, I can tell in a writer when you, you can kind of read somebody's writing and you can tell when they've held back, you know, when they've held back because a lot of people are going to read it when they've held back because they're scared. Uh, they're held back because they'll, they'll be vilified. You know, I recently started a new blog called unmistakable CEO, even though I'm not technically the CEO of unmistakable me anymore. Uh, but, um, and I started that blog because I wanted to write where there wasn't ever any pressure to succeed because there wasn't much of an audience there. I was like, this is actually great. I mean, I already have enough projects where I have an audience. And the cool thing about that is some of my best work is coming from that um, because there's no pressure to succeed. So I think that in a large part, it's um, about sort of letting go of all the expectations of all the shoulds, what's normal, what's successful, what works. All these preconceived ideas have to be abandoned. And then what you're left with is just you naked, vulnerable, um, you know, possibly not likely to be approved of the, by of the, some of the world. And, that, and that's fine because it's, you know, it, it, the challenge is, you know, you get tempted to cater to your critics. So somebody wrote in in, in one of our surveys recently, we just had did a, a survey of our audience. They said, I am honestly not in love with Srini Styles, an interviewer, which is funny because 98% of people are like, don't change a thing about the way you interview people. But this one person and yet this one, and, and then they gave me a list of all the interviewers that I, they said I should study and, and sound like. And my question was, 
well, why don't you just go listen to them instead of telling me to change what I'm doing? Because that's a waste of my energy and your time. So it's, and you know, it, it really is. I'm like, okay, that, that's silly. It's like, instead of me trying to become somebody else, you should just go listen to them because clearly that's what you want. And yet this is a person who's still listening for some reason. You know, I have no idea why, but part of it is I think it's a, it's a willingness to hold that line. I love what Seth Godin said when I asked him, you know, the question, what is it that makes somebody or something unmistakable? He said, it's the willingness to be wrong, to be criticized and to matter. And I thought, okay, that's really simple, but it's not easy. Um, because, you know, and, and the thing is, there's no manual for this. We can't teach you how to do this. We can't give you a map. We can't give you a blueprint. We can't give you a set of instructions. Even one of your daily planners is not going to teach somebody how to do this. It's intuitive and it, it's about trusting sort of that intuitive sense and getting back to kind of, you know, where you were as a kindergartner, where you don't have the level of self-awareness, um, you know, uh, and I, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, but. I keep thinking about this chapter idea called the occupational hazards of adulthood um, because we're doing a revision and expansion of, of already being unmistakable as part of my book deal. And one of the occupational hazards of adulthood that keeps coming up for me over and over again as I talk to people is self-awareness. It's a level of self-awareness, not like the good kind of self-awareness, but the level of self-awareness that becomes quickly self-judgment. So you look at something you've drawn and you're like, this sucks. It's not a good drawing because it doesn't look anything like what the drawing is supposed to look like, or this piece of writing is horrible. It doesn't sound very good. And that I think is, is one of the really difficult things about the culture that we live in because you're like, okay, this sucks. And now it not only does it suck, I'm going to share it and it's going to suck for not just me, but for the whole world. And so it becomes this just vicious cycle. And I think part of, you know, answering your question is developing this capacity to let go of self-awareness when we're creating, let go of self-judgment. And in some ways, I guess, you know, and I can't take credit for this. Somebody had talked about artistic license with me a few days ago. It really, it's giving yourself artistic license to go no holds barred, not holding back, blood on the page, dying empty type of work. Yeah, it, what's really fascinating, I've been thinking about writing about this because um, I've been doing, it's it's at the end of April, and I've been doing a, a daily blogging project, you know, because I recognize in a lot of ways that I'd gotten caught up in the science and tech of blogging. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? It's e really easy to do, and it's a very sophisticated way of hiding. Very, very sophisticated way of hiding, but you're hiding nonetheless. And one of the things I've been thinking about is that whole conscious and competency model, right? Where like at the various lowest level, you're unconscious of your incompetence, right? You just don't know <laughs> that you're not very good. And then you're conscious of your incompetence and then you're uh, conscious of your competence. But the highest level of mastery, and this is what gets people tripped up, is unconscious competence, where you're just in that zone where there's no filter. It's just you doing what you do. And the thing about it is, especially when you when you write in a public media way you're so damn like attuned to what good looks like for other people what all these other interviewers sound like and what does Serenity sound like what does Jonathan Field sound like what did Pam write right so we're so attuned to that what good sounds like that we forget that our own way of being can be good great you know perfect right whatever that whatever word you want to use there you know yeah, yeah, for sure. That's, you know, and that's, that really gets in the way of us doing our work. I love what you said about a sophisticated way of hiding. I almost want to write that as a blog post. I think there's, there's so much more to be said there. I mean, we all find sophisticated ways of hiding, right? 
you know, in, in our sophisticated ways of hiding are what Seth calls our lizard brain, Stephen Pressfield calls resistance, you know, tweeting all day and having conversations is a sophisticated way of hiding, getting on Facebook. And I do all of these things as much as anybody else does, but they're all sophisticated ways of hiding. Um, you know, when, when we hold back, you know, it was, there's a lot of transparency is one of those things I think is really interesting, especially with the work that Brene Brown has done around vulnerability. And yet we have a real challenge with transparency because there's this delicate balance of taking it too far and treating your audience like therapists. It's like that belongs in a therapist's office, not with your audience. Where you draw that line, I think is tricky because, you know, we're human beings with our lives so publicly on display. And I think it's interesting that what happens often is that people who are somewhere else in the journey, maybe, you know, further behind, if there is a behind, if we can even call it a journey where there's front, you know, winners and losers, none of that. I mean, it's all ridiculous because it's all, you know, just made up. But I think what happens is they project superhuman qualities on people who are human. And I think that's really challenging because the thing is then if people project superhuman qualities on you, you don't get to be broken. You don't get to be flawed. You don't get to cry. You don't get to have a nervous breakdown. You get to show up and be inspirational and give the world what they need. And I think that's, that's, that's a really challenging, that, that puts you in a very challenging position of, you know, how do you create your work and at the same time maintain some level of, of humanity and, and be a real person? It's, like, I I don't know that we've quite found the answer there. And uh, that's something that has interested me quite a bit in the last several months is, you know, why do we project superhuman qualities on people who are actually quite normal? We need the story. That's why I think we need the story um, of someone else having something that we don't. Because it makes it easy for us to sit on the couch or it makes it easy for us not to publish or it makes it easiest for us to turn on Netflix or whatever you know, whatever that is, is like, they've got something. Srini has something. Seth has something. Pam has something. Like, we can go down. They have that super... That I don't. And that's what separates us. That's a sophisticated way of hiding. Oh, we can go off on this for, for, for quite a while, right? Maybe, maybe, we, maybe we will at some other point, you know? But I think that's the challenge, is when you sit down and... Um, and I'm not saying everybody has to do this, but if you're later in, in your self mastery along this sort of things, that's what I will say. You have just been doing this for a while and you recognize that you put up all of these different constraints and, and, and borders for yourself. It's a really great time to strip it away and say, you know what, what's, what's real, what's true and what can I share from there? Right. And let the rest go. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because I was thinking about this this morning and I thought, you know, I mean, you've said like you've known me since the beginning and it's been a roller coaster ride. And a lot of people that there's so, so there's people who aren't around anymore from when we both first started doing what we do. And there's people who have done remarkably well who came after me and even better than I've done. And there are moments when I was like, why the hell has it taken so long? And then I just sat down and I thought, you know, I'm like, when I have to sit down and write this book, I'm going to have seven years of material to draw upon. And maybe that's why it's taken seven years so that I have subconsciously enough material to draw on for a lifetime to do creative work. And so be it if that's the case. Yeah. That's challenging because like in many ways I've thought like I've been lapped several times here, right? There are people who started wave passing and run around me like, you know, a couple of times I'm like, that sucks, right? What did they do different? What was I doing? But then when you really take perspective of your life, you know, that we each had our own thing. We each had our own battles that we were fighting at that time. And they had a good battle and they fought it in a good way. 
it doesn't mean that tides won't change. And I'm not trying to set up some type of like, you know, upper limit problem. Like, oh, those people winning are going to lose at some point. I'm just saying we, we never know. And exactly as you mentioned, we never know what ingredients are simmering along our pathways that's just going to manifest in a certain way. So, you know, at a certain point, who cares, right, what you haven't done? The only question that really matters is what are you going to do today? What are you going to do tomorrow, right? That's really all we've got. That's true. And and when you can get your head around that, I think it frees you up to do really, really interesting work. Yeah, really interesting, Clark. The other thing that I'll say here is, um, and this, I, I recognize this from... Um, when I was taking guitar lesson a few years ago and why I loved taking those lessons at that time is it was a safe place to fail, right? It was just me and that instructor. There was no audience. There was no like, like I didn't have to sound like anybody else. It was just like a place where I played like, it's just a safe place to fail, right? And I think that becomes a challenge at a certain level of exposure is finding that safe place to fail so that you can really succeed at the same time. Do you see that to be true for you as well? Funny you say that. That's actually, I'm going to steal that idea from you and write it as a blog post. Give me credit, uh, I'll be happy. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, that's largely why I started this blog. And that's in so many ways kind of why I'm happy that many people are reading it. I'm like, okay, you know, the people who do read it will send me emails about it and love it. Now, you know, funny thing is I share some of them on Facebook and Twitter, but that's about it. I don't do a lot to grow that blog. And I don't care about growing that blog because I need, basically I needed a safe place to fail. And I think that really one of the critical ingredients of being able to do interesting and unmistakable work is finding and, you know, giving yourself a safe place to fail. Um, you know, we, we recently sat down, you know, and, uh, you know, our CEO of my business partner, he said, all right, he said, here's the deal. He said, I think we figured out a thing. He's like, we need to just give you a budget that you can play with like creative projects that might not work. Um, he said, you know, and, and you can do what you want with it. He said, we'll get one and, you know, we'll, we'll allocate a certain number of dollars each month that are for you to throw at stupid, crazy ideas to see where they might go. Because so many of the things that we've done have come out of those, you know, I mean, our, our latest writing project, the compass was, I mean, an insane amount of work and we gave it away for free. I mean, it probably cost us like a good $1,500 when it came down to design, like all the elements together. And that, that's, you know, nothing, but I mean, for, for, you know, for the kind of change it's actually causing, that is way worth way more. Yeah. The challenge is how we define, how we define things. So, you know, we've been talking about largely creative entrepreneurship and yeah, I was, I was on a meeting with a, with a program participant and she was complaining in a way because we were talking about growing our business and like, we were talking about different marketing activities. She's like, well, it sounds like that's a lot of working for free. And I was like, all marketing is working for free, right? When you think about it, like, and the Compass project that you put out, yes, we can talk about a project that goes nowhere, but it's a part of your way of marketing yourself, right? And just natural and organic, but you don't do that. You don't get your stuff out there. All of a sudden, you're creatively drive and so on and so forth, you know? We thought, well, if we're going to market ourselves, let's do it in interesting and amazing ways, you know, ways that we're proud of and ways that the audience loves. It's like, wow, this is, and, you know, the kinds of stories we've already heard from it have been amazing. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us the story of a few of the spark moments in your career, like where you just knew you were in the sweet spot and this is what you were wanting to do and you were really on something. What did that feel like or, or what were those moments where you knew? Um, you know, I think one of the really big ones was actually the start of, of you know, what was originally Blogcast FM and now Unmistakable Creative. And it's funny because I still have that email and I'll post it every now and then. Um, it came from a guy named Sid Zavara. It was one of the guys I interviewed, uh, you know, when we had that weekly series called Interviews with Upcoming Bloggers. And come to think of it, I think you may have even been in our first 100 interviews on Blogcast FM. Um, 
Sid sent me an email, I think after about 13 interviews, this is when it was on the school of life as just a, you know, weekly blog post. And he said, you know, he said, I think that you're really skilled as an interviewer, but you have, you know, as a writer, you've got a long way to go. We like to joke about that now, especially that I've got a book deal. Cause he said, you know, he's like building an audience for a personal development blog is really hard, but he said, nobody is doing this interview thing. And I think you're onto something here. So that was one, one of them. I was like, well, yeah. And cause we were, I mean, we were around long before everybody and their mother had a podcast. Uh, so that, that was one of them. I think, you know, the other, other was in 2013, um, meeting AJ Leon probably was one of them. You know, he kind of lit a fire under my ass, but I saw kind of a way that I wanted to build a brand in a way that really resonated with me and personally. And it was like, I love what you guys stand for. I love what you're going to do, what you do. Everything, you know, has so much care and attention to detail. Everything is, is driven by, you know, you really are, are an artist first and a marketer second. And that really gelled with me much more than a lot of the things I'd heard over the years. Cause you know, I mean, I mean, I'd read all the books and blogs and social media marketing blogs and you know, I, I always felt something was off. Like you want I would go to these social media conferences and I'm like, why do I feel so weird in this room? Like something just isn't right here. I don't, like, I don't feel like, you know, I'd, I'd be like, something just feels off. Like these aren't my people. And once that clicked, I think, you know, going to Fargo in 2013 was one of the pivotal moments. Cause that's where art of being unmistakable was born on stage there. I gave that as a talk and then I thought, huh, maybe there's a book here. And you know, from there it was just like, you know, momentum swing. And that was probably the biggest one is that moment um, of saying, you know, I, part of it was, I, I just, I was like, okay, I'm 35 and, you know, this might be career suicide, but I don't have anything left to lose at this point. Generally, that's when the best work, well, I won't say generally. Sometimes that's when the best work comes up is when you get to that point where either you don't have anything to lose or you get to the point where it's like succeeding on these terms is failing. So I need to come up with another way of succeeding that it actually like makes me come alive, you know? Totally. That's key right there. I think that's what it is, is finding a way to succeed that makes you come alive. Um, if you are finding a way to succeed in our, if you're successful by everybody else's metrics, what the hell is the point in that? I wondered like that's, I'm the same way with like, you know, the social media side of things. Like, so I don't like being called a social media marketer. Cause I'm like, there's an awful lot of weirdness that happens. And this, I, I think it's a lot of trying way too hard, right? Trying way too hard to be like, yeah, well that, that's, that's a good way of putting it. You know, it's funny. I, I was invited to speak at a conference, um, for, uh, a, a website that I used to write for called Surgeon's Journal and the CEO said, would you come and speak? P.S. We're marketers. Don't hold it against us. And I was like, well, you guys know me well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So how do you stick with a project long enough to know that there's actually juice there as opposed to like, you know, because a lot of times we kill projects way too soon, right? That's a tough one. Um, I wish I had a really concrete answer for you on this because it's possible I've killed certain projects way too soon. Like, you know, some people argue that I killed this year's instigator experience too soon, but that's also coming from somebody who's never planned an event that big. I knew what it took to plan that event. And I was like, we're not going to be able to do this in the way that we do it either. Because I mean, we don't, we're, you know, for us, everything we do is all in to the point of, you know, people are usually exhausted when they're done when they've worked with us, but they also know it's some of the best work of their life. In fact, that was to me, one of the core values that I wanted to instill in, you know, our organization is that whenever we work with somebody, they walk away saying, you know what, that was the best work I've done in my life. Like our designer, Lauren Rains, she did the compass. 
hands down. I've known her for six years. I've never seen her produce something of this quality. Like it's, it was a whole other level. Like we stepped up the game and I was really proud that she got to do something like that. And I wanted that for anybody who, who worked with us, um, which, you know, which I, I know it was a bit of a tangent, but when do you kill something? Like, how do you know? You know, there's, I think that you have to have a certain level of grit. There, there's a certain point. There's a lot of people who would have killed everything I'm doing long ago, right? Because it involved moving home to my parents at like, you know, living here 35, 36, when most of my friends are off married, having kids, you know, building their houses in the suburbs. I mean, doing everything that you should be doing. And of course, that's the key right there. It's should, right? So part of it is like, you know, having enough grit to say, okay, can I go past, you know, where the average person would quit? But also knowing when you've hit a dead end, when it's just like, this is not working. And see, the thing with us is we've seen enough glimpses of, holy shit, this could get really awesome. And we've had moments, you know, I mean, like literally, if you think I was ready to to scrap the whole thing in November and imagine if I hadn't gone till February when that editor contacted me, imagine if I had quit in November and she had found that article and said, oh, well, I'm sorry to tell you that I've shut down the podcast. No, shut down everything I'm doing. Like the difference was two months. So I don't know that I have a concrete answer for this. I mean, I think that part of it is seeing, you know, what the feedback is like. And fortunately for us, the feedback had always been good consistently. Like the kind, like even when, even when the money doesn't match up to, you know, the meaning you're creating, like if the meaning you're creating is significant, then I think that it gives you the fuel to keep going when the money and the meaning don't match up until they finally do. If that makes sense. I went on a total tangent just to get to that point. You should cut out the whole rest of it. Just, just to give that as the answer. Most of our creative careers seem to be tangents. So, right. And sometimes it's just, you, you get on one of those tangents. And I think that's a beautiful way because I mean, the reason I asked is there's basically two different questions here. One is how do you stick with something long enough that you can actually evaluate, right? that it's working, that it's got some juice, so on and so forth. So that's one question. The other question is, when do you kill something when it's just really not going the way that you want it to go? And that you can have something where you don't necessarily kill it. You just don't stick with it long enough, right? It's just, you know, stillborn in that way, right? Yeah, and, and I think that's where meaning becomes a fuel for you to keep going, right? Like if the work is creating impact in somebody else's life, that actually fuels you in a lot of ways when, the, uh, when all the other metrics aren't working. Fantastic. All right. So what is the most unanticipated challenge that you're currently facing? Um, that's a good question. I think that, you know, suddenly we, we, we had a real momentum swing. Like we went from no momentum to, okay, all of a sudden it's all starting to come back. And this time I want to make sure that it's that way for good. Um, and I guess that maybe, you know, as I'm thinking about it, since you asked that is knowing that the future we're about to create is exactly what I want, you know, um, like, are we going to end up exactly wrong? Cause I know there will be changes along the way. There always are. Um, and other opportunities will come up. So knowing that I think, uh, and then, and then figuring out how is that done in a way that is repeatable, sustainable, and still allows us to, to operate like artists. If people, only remember one thing about you or your body of work from this episode, what would you want that to be? Take in all the inputs you need to take in. And then when you're ready to create, 
remove them all and see where you go. Connect dots. That's how you get to unmistakable work in my mind. It's about connecting ideas and dots and um, putting things together in a way that only you could, even if you, you are you know, influenced by other people's ideas. Because I've been influenced by hundreds of people's ideas. None of them are originally mine, but together they're created in a way that only I could create them. And I think that that's the key to doing really interesting work. Srini, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been a really fun conversation. All righty, Creative Giants. So you heard it from Srini Rao. What inputs do you need to take in and or let go of to create something that's uniquely you, unmistakably you, powerfully you? Think about that. And until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.